What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? Today, I'm talking to Christine Spang, the co-founder and CTO of a very cool company called Nihilus. Christine, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining me. Hey, Cortland. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on the show. I've heard about indie hackers for a long time, so it's a real honor to actually be on the show. And I've heard about Nihilus for a long time, and I was actually a user of your desktop-based email application back in the day. Oh, wow. Super cool. Yeah. So can you explain to us what Nihilus is and how it works? Yeah. So the basic gist of Nihilus is that email has been around for a really long time, and it's essentially the lingua franca of business. When people are talking between different organizations, they're communicating, they're organizing collaboration, meetings, sharing documents, all sorts of things like that. Uh, They do it through email. And yet, because email's been around for so long, it's been around for about 50 years, longer than the, the web itself, it's become really hard to develop with over time. It's a global distributed system that has many different client server implementations. And while there are open protocols for working with email, Because there are so many different implementations, there is a lot of kind of edge cases and complexity that you have to deal with. So we built Nihilus in order to drastically simplify the experience of developing software that works with email. So the basic product is a modern REST API that allows you to connect to any email mailbox, uh, as well as anyone's calendar and address book, all through one really simple API. So if you used APIs like Stripe or Twilio, it's kind of like that, but for email. Okay, so for the non-developers in the audience, it's very difficult for a developer to build an app that includes email integration or calendar integration because it's just too complex. And what Christina's been working on at Nihilus for the last few years is building an API that any programmer can plug into and that allows them to easily build an app that includes email or calendar or contact integration. What we've kind of like seen in uh, kind of the software market and trends in the last few years is more and more folks building business productivity tools that allow you to kind of be better at some kind of job, but also need to pull like communication and collaboration information. And the data for that is an email. So all these folks need to be able to integrate with email. And we make that really easy. I wish you had existed what, like eight or nine years ago when I first started making apps online? Because the very first three things that I made were all intimately connected with email. I made, I think the very first app I ever coded was an app that you checked your Gmail inside of Facebook. And then after that, it was an app that you created advanced filters for Gmail. So you could say, you know, if I get an email with this many attachments or this many recipients, I want you to delay it until this time of day or something like that. And then I made an app that let you turn your emails into tasks and check them off. And every single one of them, I had to integrate with email and there was no API like, Nihilus. And so I had to go do all the stuff myself. And it was a good learning experience, but it was extremely frustrating. So I understand why a company like yours can exist. But let me ask you here right off the bat, email is notoriously difficult to work with as a programmer. And then on the sales side of things, I think most people think of email as being free. So you've got this dual challenge of starting a company where it's really hard to build what you're building. And also the people in your market aren't exactly used to paying for stuff. Why do this to yourself? Why start an email company? Yeah, funny story. So in the beginning, actually, the the like product vision for Nihilus was to eventually create 
uh, an email client for power users. So the infrastructure side actually kind of fell out of this initial product division of building an email client. But we actually did realize that it was going to be difficult to build an email client, which is actually why we started out with this kind of data abstraction layer. So the advice we got was like, you need like 10 engineers for a year just to build like the basic version. And we're like, well, we don't have 10 engineers or a year. So uh, maybe we won't do that. So we kind of took a step back and are like, what's a stepping stone that could help us get there that might also be useful to other people? And that's how we ended up building this essentially like middleware layer API that abstracts away all of the complexity of dealing with mail providers. And I can talk a little bit more about this. Uh, you, you mentioned earlier that uh, you were a user of N1 or Nihilus Mail, which actually is the email client that we built. And this email client was originally built backed by the data APIs that we sell today. So if I were to draw out the timeline of the company, it was like original start. We wanted to build an email client for power users, decided that was too hard, started building the uh, data APIs, launched those as like an open source repo, uh, which is an interesting thing that we did to kind of get the word out in the beginning because we knew that we were going to have to like get developers uh, excited about what we were doing because we were essentially like saying, hey, here's like a new way to develop with email and trust us to be a good service provider for you. So first we released kind of the basic APIs and open source repo and GitHub and did a bunch of press around that. And then we turned that into a SaaS service, which is actually the same service that we uh, run today. So we first launched that in like, fall of 2014, I believe. So it's been a few years at this point. And pretty soon after we had launched this like kind of SaaS API, we started working on this email client that was based off the API and probably spent like two years total working on that. Learned a lot. And I would say this ties back to what you were talking about in terms of like it being a challenge to kind of monetize email and that like, the email client, uh, it was a pretty challenging business model to to figure out where we had these developer APIs and we had the email client and we very easily got a lot of people to like download and try out the email client. But because people expect email clients to be free, no one really wanted to pay for just the base email client. So we were building these essentially like plugin packages into the email client that were essentially to like kind of make email, the email client have really tight integrations with other products. That was our long-term plan for being able to like monetize that email client. But as you can imagine, building like three major products as a tiny startup is incredibly difficult. And we just saw a lot of churn on the email client. Like people would try it and then they, you know, there were kind of like early adopters who would go on to the next big thing afterwards. And people didn't want to pay for the base email client. And it was a real struggle for us to kind of also build products on top of that, uh, that we could sell for more money. Yeah, I bet. So what did you guys do after you decided to pivot away from the email client? Yeah, so I basically went back to our roots. All of that time when we were working on the email client, we were still uh, developing and selling the email data infrastructure APIs. And 
Uh, we had a few uh, companies come on board in the early days that started out super small and had been growing all of that whole time. So we essentially like took a look at the business metrics of our two different products, which were the data APIs and the email client, and found that the business metrics for the email client were really bad. You know, we had lots of people download it, try it, and the churn within like two months was like 90% or something like that, which uh, is really hard to turn into uh, any sort of sustainable business because your customers trend down, trend down towards zero over time. So you just would have to spend like infinite money on marketing. But at the same time, looking at the metrics for our our data infrastructure APIs, uh, it was kind of the opposite story, actually. We found that when people started using the APIs, they would start out small and uh, their usage would grow over time. So they would connect more mailboxes to their applications. They would get users and we would then be powering those users as well. And so it's almost kind of the opposite situation where we found that that product was really sticky and people would build build the APIs into their product to power their email features and their usage would increase over time. So the the way that we charge for the, the APIs is essentially like per connected mailbox. So any email address that is connected to an application through Nihilus, we bill the developer of that application for that mailbox. And... Yeah, just looking at the metrics for that API is that, you know, it started out super small, but uh, it was very steadily growing. And the growth metrics that we were seeing there were really, really promising. So uh, essentially what it came down to was we decided to shut down development on the mail client. And we essentially spun it off as its own uh, open source project. And one of the original developers on that mail client uh, still maintains it. Uh, there's a fork called uh, Mail, which uh, if, if you want to continue to use Nihilus Mail, I recommend you use the fork because we're not developing Nihilus Mail anymore. So we spun that off and completely uh, stopped developing it and refocused completely on the data APIs, which just made much more sense as a business. That transition was complete about a year and a half ago, I would say. And how are things going nowadays? Can you share any numbers around the amount of revenue you're generating or the number of customers you have or the size of your company? Yeah, for sure. So kind of the gist of things is that we've now been around for about five years. Uh, the team is about 35 people. And a lot of that growth has been recently. So I, I would say that about a year ago, we were about 15 people. And now we're 35. So it's quite a lot more. We are making millions of dollars in revenue each year. I won't get into exact specifics there, but we have about 200 paying customers that are using the platform. So those are all other businesses that uh, are using us to power different features in in their applications or internal tools. Um, There's all sorts of different use cases, not just kind of people building other pieces of software. Anytime you want to access any of the data or automate things in email, the Nihilus APIs are uh, a good fit for that. Nice. Congratulations on all of that. It's got to feel, I imagine, really good to be in a position where you're generating millions in revenue. You probably feel very secure where not too long ago, you know, the mail client you were working on wasn't really working out the way that you planned. Did you imagine at that point in time that things could have taken a turn like they have? 
Um, that's a good question. Uh, it was definitely pretty rocky for a while there where we weren't really sure uh, what the future of the business was going to be. But I don't know, I'm kind of the per- a person who like takes things one week at a time and like I don't give up until it's like obviously like totally not working and because like we never reached a point where like there was no way forward, it's just worked out. But it does feel good. I would say that like there are almost like more challenges over time as you like grow a company because there's just so many more moving parts and complexity. You know, we ha- now have like an entire sales and marketing department, which uh, in the early days of the company was was all engineers. Uh, so that's been a kind of new thing that's been really interesting. And also it's tricky in terms of like your culture will change over time as you like add different sorts of people and have to figure out how to work well together. And I definitely, you know, at this point, I am basically like a full-time manager. I don't, I rarely write code on our product anymore. Um, And I think that's a really healthy thing. And that's, you know, if you start a company and you expect to grow it, you should want to learn the skills of management and, want to like get good at them because that's like the way to have the most leverage uh, as a founder of a company once it's beyond, you know, 20 people. That's a tough lesson to learn, especially as a developer. You're used to all the productivity sort of coming out of yourself, right? If something's going to get done, you sit down and you do it. And it can be hard for a lot of first-time founders who are developers to realize like the power that lies in delegating and having other people who you trust to get things done and how much more effective you can be if you let them do those things and you work with them. Yeah, for sure. I feel like I've, like before a year ago, it was still at a point where I I could do some things myself and that was fine. But, you know, doubling the company in the past year, it's it's completely changed. But also in a good way in that like, we hired a bunch more engineers and now I actually don't feel like I need to hold up the, the product in the system because there are a lot of really smart, competent people that I'm working with who uh, are honestly like better at many of the things that I used to do. So that's really exciting to see. So let's go back to the, the early days where you were doing a lot of coding. Yeah. Or even before then, how did you first learn to code? Because a lot of people listening in want to start companies and they're in a position where they don't know how to code and they're wondering if they should learn or how they can best learn. Mm-hmm. What's the story behind how you got into programming? Yeah, totally. Um, So the basic gist of it is that in high school, I, well, even before high school, I started out being into computer games and all sorts of different computer games from like uh, Warcraft and Starcraft and Privateer and all these kinds of things. And essentially, I was trying to find like games that could like let me escape into other worlds. And Eventually, this led me to this sort of online game called uh, MUDs, or like multi-user dungeons. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they're basically like text-based games that you play across the internet. And so in high school, I started playing this Lord of the Rings-themed MUD uh, called Shadows of Isildur. And uh, I have this habit of like, like ending up in charge of things just like through force of curiosity, I guess. So I got really into this game. I played a lot. Eventually the people who ran it were like, hey, help us run the game. So I started helping run it, kind of building areas of the world, using the in-game tools, uh, running like storylines and plots, 
um, because it was like a very role playing intensive game. Mm-hmm. And uh, eventually, I I wanted to be able to like do things in that role that involved like changing the game mechanics itself. So basically, I had to learn to code. And the game engine was written in C. And uh, I don't really recommend C as a first language, but you know, I essentially started teaching myself C in high school in order to work on this uh, game engine. And the game engine also only ran on Linux. So I had to get my brother to help me install Linux on my computer. And somehow we managed to not like brick our Windows installation <laughs> while doing that. Yeah, it was really, it was like before the days when like, like the partition editor in the Linux installer is like completely foolproof. Mm-hmm. So if you like press the wrong button, you could like wipe your whole hard drive. It was super scary. Well, it sounds like you really wanted to make changes to this game and you were willing to jump through hoops, learn how to code and risk breaking your entire computer to do it, which I think is great because for a lot of people, it's difficult to learn how to code. There's lots of frustrating periods where you ask yourself, why am I even doing this? And if you don't have that sort of drive, this thing you want to work on to learn, then it's easy to just give up. Yeah, totally. But it's kind of funny, like, through this experience of, like, wanting to contribute to this game, I got introduced to the, like, free and open source software community surrounding Linux. So the distribution that I installed uh, when I was in high school was uh, this distribution called Debian, which is, like, a really popular Linux distro that's uh, also kind of the foundation of many other Linux distros. Through that, I like learned about like open source and like like the free software where it came from, and that ultimately led me to want to go to MIT. So because I I, I heard that like free software came from MIT, this sounds really awesome. I want to go there. So that's essentially how I ended up at going to MIT is because I like started teaching myself to program and then discovered free software. So let me ask, when did you start learning about entrepreneurship and startups and, and running a business? Because that's something that's very tangential to learning how to code. And most people I've talked to who've ended up starting a startup have spent some time reading about it and dreaming about it before they got started. What's the story there for you? I I kind of consider myself to be a bit of an uh, accidental entrepreneur. So like I, I basically ended up in startups through like, free and open source software in that like when I was in college, I essentially got all of my college internships through my connections in like the open source software communities, including my first job out of college, which uh, was this startup called Casebase, which was started by a few people that I knew, Computer Club, uh, or the Student Information Information Processing Board, which was that full name of this club because uh, it had been around for so long that they called computing information processing back in the day. I joined this startup that was started by some friends of mine, and that was like my first experience with any sort of entrepreneurship. Um, It was a really interesting, super cool company uh, in that uh, it was totally bootstrapped. So like they, they never... Uh, raised any money for Caseplace other than uh, they won the MIT 100K entrepreneurship competition, which was like one way they ha- got some initial funding for for the company. And then also uh, we got some like small business research grants from the government. And other than that, like Caseplace was a totally bootstrapped company that built itself up through revenue. Um, and eventually, so I was there for basically like a year and a half, including 
uh, the few months that I spent working there as a senior at MIT. And then the founders sold that company to Oracle. So I kind of got to see like the whole arc of like uh, a lifetime of a startup uh, in one kind of iteration through Casebyte. And I would say that's like my first experience with entrepreneurship. Did that inspire you to to start your own company after that? Or did you feel that, oh, that was a cool experience, but I still want to keep on the path as a developer and maybe go into the industry? Mm-hmm. Yeah, honestly, I never really thought of myself as a founder. I had a friend uh, also from MIT who uh, I remember having a conversation with about like what I was going to do after Case Place. And he was like, you know, do you think you'll, think you'll start something or join something? And I was like, uh, I don't know, probably join something. And he's like, yeah, starting something is stressful, which is pretty funny looking back in hindsight, because I, I would agree that starting something is, is stressful. But here's what happened. So basically, uh, at Case Place, the founder sold the company to Oracle. Uh, I stayed at Oracle for basically the two years of my retention. And kind of like six months before my retention was up at Oracle, I was trying to think of like what I was going to do next, because uh, honestly, I was like super bored. And I felt like if I stayed at Oracle for uh, a few years, it was like a pretty cushy job, but I didn't feel like I was like learning that much. And it just seemed like a place where I, I could like stagnate and get left behind. So I was trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And it was also a time in my life where like I had stayed living in Boston for a couple years after school, working at Case Place, but uh, I didn't necessarily want to stay in Boston forever. And in the, that past three years, a bunch of friends of mine had moved away and I kind of felt like it was a good chance for me to like try living somewhere else because I would have to like rebuild my community in Boston if I was going to stay there. So I wanted to check out the Bay Area and I uh, had a friend of mine from college, uh, this guy, Michael Greenwich, who had this email idea he'd been kicking around for a while because I'd been trying to build some stuff with email uh, as his undergraduate thesis at MIT. And it was really hard. Um, so we've been like we were pretty good friends in college, and uh, I've been talking to him about that. But I was also like talking to companies about potentially just like getting a job. So uh, essentially, like I took a week off from work in like April of 2013, and I flew out to San Francisco, and I interviewed with two companies, uh, Stripe and Meteor. This was actually the first time I'd ever done a technical interview anywhere. <laughs> anytime because I'd gotten all my jobs through connections previously. So uh, needless to say, I think I was pretty bad at interviewing at the time and uh, I didn't get an offer from either company. So I basically was just like, what the heck, might as well just start the company with my friend. And I don't know, it, it didn't, didn't feel like super risky at the time, given that I was like, well, I want to like move across the country. That's like a big change. And I was 24 and didn't really have like a lot of possessions or responsibilities. I think the most expensive things I owned at the time were like a laptop and two bicycles. So, did you guys have any funding or were you living off your savings? Um, so in the beginning, we we were just living off of savings. So, uh, my co-founder Michael had been consulting for a while and just kind of doing part-time contract work. And essentially like I moved across the country, did it like super cheap, shipped like 
books via media mail, which is like the super cheap way to like send books across the country. And I'd also, I have three siblings. Um, and in college I lived in a, a, a big 30 person co-op. So uh, I had a lot of experience with like living with a lot of other people and just like kind of keeping my expenses really low. So right. I essentially moved in with uh, a bunch of roommates in Oakland and uh, I was living off of savings for the, the first three or four months, which wasn't that difficult just because I like wasn't spending a lot of money on much. So if you could think back to those days, you move in with all these roommates, you and your co-founder are going to start this company somewhat out of necessity because you didn't get any job offers. What was your overall goal here? What was sort of your best case scenario for what could happen? Yeah. I mean, honestly, at the time, like I approached it with the attitude of like, this is a fun experiment and no matter what happens, it'll be an interesting story to look back on later in life. I, I didn't really expect it to to be still around, to be honest. I didn't really have like a dream of like the future, but I was excited about kind of building an organization from scratch. That's like something that was really fun that I would really get a chance to do somewhere else and to like have a place that I could like imbue with like the culture that I wanted and essentially like create a place that is a place that I would want to work and hopefully also like make something in the meantime that helps people build stuff that they wouldn't be able to make before. I don't know. It seems like a good way to make a mark on the world that you wouldn't be able to do at, at a company. So it's kind of how I was thinking about it. Yeah, it makes perfect sense that after your job at Oracle, where you were super bored, that you would prioritize creating a company that would actually be fun for you to work at and where others would enjoy working as well. What was it like in the early days of Nihilus when you first got the company off the ground? And how did you make decisions as to what to prioritize working on first? So for the first mm, three or four months or so, essentially we were mostly kind of like prototyping things and like iterating on the idea because mm, it's hard to get people to give you money if you like can't really even describe to them what your goal is. So I don't know, the early days were a lot of kind of conversations around like what the long-term goal was and like how to communicate that to people, how to communicate the problem and talking to lots of people that were potentially like having that problem to kind of help the ideation phase and also like starting to write some code to see like what an initial product would look like. So like my, my background is all in kind of like backend systems engineering. So I started out by like writing our initial like IMAP sync engine. So it was like three or four months of like working out of my co-founder's apartment and like every single cafe in the mission. And I can tell you which is the best cafe to work out of, or at least was five years ago. Um, and oh yeah, which one? It's a house coffee at 24th and Folsom. That place is the shit. Um, All right, I'm going to write that down. Yeah, it's house like the German way, H-A-U-S. And they're really great because, one, everybody else there is working. (laughs) Two, it's pretty quiet. uh, And they just play like chill electronic music in the background. And three, there's like power and Wi-Fi. So I I felt like I learned a lot about, about like working out of coffee shops and that it's like super annoying to have to like 
find a seat and deal with bad Wi-Fi and like buy like a coffee every three hours. So <laughs> I was really glad when we stopped having to do that. So how did you guys get out of this phase where you're scrimping at coffee shops and you guys are burning through your savings and trying to get this product out the door to the point where you reached, I don't know, like some first stepping stone of stability? And it turns out it's really hard to hire people if you don't have any money. So we started talking to uh, various seed investors. And I would say that I mean, basically like in December of 2013, we raised like a million dollars or something like that. And like the way that we did that was like through our network, essentially. So my co-founder had run this like entrepreneurship event at MIT. So had gotten connected to various people in the startup community that way. And just by like, you know, asking around, like uh, one, one of the great things about Silicon Valley is that there is this like large community of people that's like willing to kind of take a bet on a team. And even if like the idea is like, in its early stages, give you some money to work on a problem. Um, And I think that's something that's really unique about this area. That's pretty great. So we essentially had this like early formation of an idea and like the pitch that we were giving people was like, it's really hard to develop with email. We want to make email better. And so uh, a bunch of folks gave us some money and we Got this like tiny little studio office uh, in the mission, which had no windows, but it did have a skylight, which made it not quite a cave. But essentially, we like managed to fit like six desks and a, an IKEA couch in here, and like it was just like the place we would go to like crank out code every day. So you've got some funding. You've got an office. You're no longer having to buy coffees every three hours at coffee shops. What did you do to get your first few users in the door? Yeah, I alluded to this a little bit before with like uh, really focusing on open source and kind of generating developer interest that way. So we hired our first couple employees in um, like January and February of 2014. So essentially we like raised this money and then basically kind of used our network to find uh, other people with few responsibilities who could live cheaply. And uh, we paid ourselves all a flat $75,000 a year plus equity in the company. And we got this really cheap office and spent like six months like writing the first version of like our API and our like IMAP sync code and released that um, in summer of 2014 as this open source repo on GitHub, which was like super scary. I remember flipping the bit on the GitHub repo that made it public and like worrying that, I don't know, hordes of internet trolls were going to show up the next day and tell us our code was terrible. Um, which happens sometimes. It does, but it turns out that most of the time, like if you don't go and actively tell other people about the thing that you're working on, just no one even will find it or notice. So is that what happened to you? Yeah, kind of. I mean, we we flipped, we made the repo public. I think in like January of 2014, and essentially no one found it until we like did a press push and are like, "Hey, we are working on kind of the future of email. 
and here's what it looks like. And, you know, we got an article in TechCrunch, uh, talked to a bunch of reporters, and we essentially needed to, like, get attention. There was no way this thing was going to work if we didn't manage to, like, talk to other developers who are having the same problem and make sure that, like, what we were working on would solve their problem and get initial customers. So I think this is, like, a really key part of how we got the company off the ground. I'm curious about how your your mindset has changed, if at all, since those early days. Are there any things that you believed back then when you first started Nihilus that you don't believe anymore? Yeah, I, I really thought in the early days that we could like reinvent all parts of corporate America from scratch. And I definitely don't agree with that anymore. It turns out like a lot of best practices that exist with like running companies are like there for a reason. And that like everything seems super simple and like you don't need to have like structures when six people in a room. But even going from like six people to 35, it's like communication gets a lot harder. And uh, there's all sorts of kind of things that you need to do to kind of get everyone aligned and like rowing in the same direction. And, you know, in the early days, like I could literally go to work whenever I wanted. Like we weren't having to, I didn't have any meetings. Like I could work on Saturday. I could not work on Tuesday and like nothing would really change because it's just like, you know, following your own rhythms. But like, as you add more people to a group, like you have to get more disciplined about like, you know, when you're working and when you're available and you can't just kind of like follow your, follow your like whims into as to like, what you want to be doing. So I kind of thought like we could just reinvent everything, but now I really feel like you should pick a couple things that you want to change about your company and like just do everything else by the books. Were you ever tempted to just stay small, sell your API that you'd built, keep the company lean, maybe not raise any more money, and then continue being able to take Tuesdays off and not have to worry about meetings and do all that good stuff? Mm, honestly, not really. Just because, uh, honestly, just like building the technology for this product has been very challenging. And I really want to be able to hire more people to work on it because having more people makes it better. So I think like if I'd wanted to do that, I should have picked a different problem domain. And this is like the kind of business where like you can make like a whole area really better for everyone, but it's going to take a lot of work and you're going to have to like right. build a significant organization to do it. So um, I kind of uh, should have signed up for a different problem if uh, I wanted to keep it small. But uh, I think it's really exciting to build a, a bigger business. And you know, I think there's pros and cons of like raising venture funding, but uh, there are a lot of things that it unlocks that are really exciting. Yeah, that's really something to think about how the, product you decide to build and the business you decide to create really influences whether or not you need to raise venture funding. How did you guys transition from deciding you wanted to do this API to building Nihilus N1, your email client? Mm, I mean, it was a bit tricky. Essentially, like in the first year, so our, our uh, employees one and two were both backend engineers. And then uh, we actually met this awesome guy uh, in a coffee shop. His name is Ben Goto. And uh, his background was in building uh, iOS applications. And we 
brought him on pretty shortly after. Uh, and he essentially was like building various different like front end applications as we were building the API in order to make sure that the API design was good. So essentially like he started building the email client uh, as soon as we had the API in a pretty good place. And we sort of developed like two teams over time where we had the smaller team that was building the core of the email client and like the majority of folks working on the backend infrastructure. And eventually the the client team uh, got bigger, but we were, we were essentially just like working on both of them at the same time. But the mail client started out as like a very small experiment with two people working on it. That's such a difficult place to be in where you guys have really these two projects operating side by side. One of them is beginning to grow pretty fast and the other one is the one that you started off with. How was that for you? Was it stressful trying to decide how to prioritize and split your time between these two projects? Yeah, for sure. It was super challenging. Um, And honestly, like looking back at it, I almost would consider it to be a strategic mistake to try to do both of those things at the same time in that the email client was, you know, we considered it to be like the future of the company at the time. So like it was kind of the exciting, shiny thing to work on. And yet like the back end had to be like rock solid and scalable in order to enable that to happen. So there was definitely some like kind of weird cultural things around like what was exciting to work on versus not. And also like, especially as we were starting to scale up the back end team being really overworked. So as I mentioned earlier, like infrastructure and backend stuff has always been my interest and what gets me excited. So I wasn't that unhappy to have the email client not work out. And it's, been really, really helpful for us as a company to be super focused on one product. And like, if I were to start another company, I would never try this again to have like two major products that were both like pretty complex and to try to resource them with a really small team. Yeah, I bet it's, uh, I think one of the most common things you hear people tell founders is to focus because in any company, the number of things that are tempting to build is always growing. Every time you build anything, it enables you to build a bunch of other things. And it's yep. really hard to say no to those things, and it's hard to prioritize. What was it like to transition out of building the email client and back into focusing on the API full-time? Yeah, totally. That's a hard decision to make as well. Yeah, I mean, part of the reason to like do a startup is to like think big and dream big. And one reason that people do it when they're young is because you don't know what's not possible. So, like when we were building these multiple products, we thought it might be possible and it turned out to be completely crazy. But I would say that like, we probably hung on to the email client for a bit too long uh, in terms of like not deciding that it was a bad business. We did kind of a bunch of iterations on like things to try to make it work. Um, We actually ported our email sync engine to JavaScript uh, to ship it in the front end so that, the email client wouldn't have to be storing tons of data on our backend, which is really expensive. So about 15 months ago, my co-founder left the company. And this is also the time that we stopped working on the email client. The mail client was really always kind of uh, Michael's vision. And I think that was definitely a, a factor in kind of how things shook out there and that it wasn't working out. That's a lot of change to handle. Not only dealing with shutting down this product, 
that's absorbing your entire company but not doing very well, but also losing your co-founder. How did you deal with that? It was really stressful. Um, and honestly, like the relationship I don't think was great for me or him for a while before that uh, for various reasons. I mean, essentially what happened was like my co-founder left and then like the whole company really came together and we talked about like what was going to happen next. And folks thought that I could be CEO or uh, we had uh, basically our first business development uh, hire, uh, this guy, Gleb Polyakov, who had been with the company for about two years at that time. We had hired him after uh, raising a Series A uh, in 2015. And uh, we also thought that Gleb could do a good job as a CEO. And basically what we did was like Gleb and I sat down and had a conversation um, and I really wanted to stay focused on technology. And uh, I also thought that that Gleb's skill set just would allow him to ramp up much more quickly to be a really effective CEO. And that what I really wanted was for us to make a decision that was going to be like the best thing for the company. So uh, we decided to make Gleb the CEO. And uh, I think that's actually worked out really well for us. But it was pretty transformative for me to like go through uh, this experience of like, you know, us all having to come together and, you know, to have the team really back me. That really helps my confidence level. And for us to just like figure out something that was like super difficult. Most companies don't really make it through a transition like this. And I think that's something that's really unique uh, about our team that folks really kind of trust each other that like we're now kind of battle hardened and that we've kind of like reaffirmed that we want to be working together and are excited to be working together. And that's like a really powerful core for uh, an organization. So I, I feel really good about where we're at right now. I think that like, you know, we're stronger that we, than we were before and also like way more focused. And yeah, I've learned a lot about myself through the whole process. And I, I also like wouldn't really trade the experience. Like obviously people make mistakes and like, there are some things that I would do differently in the future, but I'm not really sure that I would do them differently in the past. Yeah, I think there's definitely something to a team going through something difficult together and, and in some ways staring death in the face. Like we might not make it through it and then making it through it and coming out the other side far stronger. And it seems like that's what's happened to you because since then you guys have grown from 15 people to 35. Your new business is doing millions in revenue. What are some of the the bigger things and decisions you made to emerge from that pivot and build an even better business than you had before. Yeah, for sure. I also want to give a quick shout out to our uh, Series A investor, 8VC. They were super fantastic with with us throughout the whole transition. And I definitely don't think we would have gotten through it without their backing and support. So definitely want to give credit where credit is due. Yeah. I mean, like the first thing that we did basically like after the, like the first part of the transition was over was we took everyone to like a whole company offsite. This was like 15 people at the time. And we actually did this super scrappy. We just uh, used uh, the house of our VP of engineering in the Oakland Hills because we just wanted to get out of the office. And uh, he was very gracious to offer his space. So we just like sat down and kind of like went through the process of like writing down who we wanted to be as a company and 
one of the things that came out of that was our open source company handbook, which you can read on GitHub, github.com slash nihilist slash handbook, which uh, iterates what our values are, what the mission of the company is, uh, a bunch of like company policy things. Um, and I think that day was really important for like changing a bunch of things about the company that we wanted to be different and getting all on the same page about what we were about and just kind of orienting that like, hey, we just went through this pretty challenging phase and we're like coming out the other side and we want to be all kind of moving in the same direction. So that was like the first thing. And I think that was really important. I guess like the other thing was like, you know, engineering had to transition to everyone working on the back end. So we had to do kind of a lot of teaching and mentorship and um, also uh, started ramping up hiring again. Um, And that was definitely like a challenging thing to start doing uh, again. And I think that like this process of like, starting to articulate what we're about has been really helpful with ramping up our hiring again. One thing that we did in the past year that was really useful was work with, uh, I think it's a friend of yours actually, uh, who introduced us, uh, Lynn Tai, uh, who has this website, Key Values. Yeah. Uh, which is awesome. You should totally check it out. And talking to Lynn really helped us kind of articulate what was unique about us as a company and like why people would want to join. Cause I think that like when it comes to hiring uh, in the early days, the easiest thing to do is to like really milk your network and just like hire your friends because you know, when you're a tiny company and you can't pay people anywhere close to a market salary, like it really helps to have a direct connection to other people to like get them to jump ship because it's, it's scary and risky. So we kind of had exhausted our, our network in the past. And I think when you get to the point where you can't just like go to your friends anymore because you've already asked all of them, uh, <laughs> you you have to like uh, work on building the brand of your company to extend beyond your comp- beyond your network. So the first part of that is like figuring out what's unique about you and like writing down and then sharing that. So these various different parts of the process were really helpful. And obviously, like, it worked pretty well in that, like, we have hired a whole bunch of people in the past year and have grown the company a lot. And um, I also think that we've succeeded at kind of staying true to, like, the core of who we are um, by, like, trying to find folks that are values aligned with the company. And that's, that's pretty cool. That's super cool. I mean, you said online that your main goal as you scale Nihilus as a business is to grow a company culture that you're proud of. And to see that you've been able to do that, especially emerging from a super hard time, is really impressive. I mean, it's hard to grow a good company culture in any condition, let alone the situation that Mm -hmm. you guys found yourselves in. What are some things you've done to create the culture that you're proud of? And what does that culture look like exactly? Yeah, for sure. Um, I really believe that uh, kind of the roots of culture come from the leaders of a company. So a lot of what I do to like help grow the culture in the way I want is to kind of act in ways that I want people to replicate. So one of those things is basically like giving people a really high level of trust by default. I have been described as uh, earnest by many a person. And you know, I'm, I'm the kind of person who like, 
believes what you say and who, if you're in charge of something, I will like totally let you fail at that thing if like that's what you need. And I think that like giving this high trust by default kind of helps establish that as like uh, a quality that exists at the company. And I also think that like having high trust and like psychological safety is like really the core of a well-functioning team. So that's really what I keep coming back to time and time again. Um, There's a few other things that I also try to do that I think are really important. One is just like being really reliable, like show up on time, do the things that you say you're going to do, be kind to people, don't hold back when there's like things that need to be said, but also like try to deliver things with kindness. And also like one thing that I like learned from my family growing up was like how to be kind of gritty and tough and like not give up when problems are hard. And I think that one of the most meaningful experiences in life is to like work with other people through like a hard thing and like accomplish something that you didn't know was possible. And in some sense that involves like kind of suspending disbelief of like, we can't do this and just like kind of grinding through things, even if it uh, is really difficult. So yeah, that's kind of how I think about it. You mentioned earlier that before you became a founder, one of the things you heard from a friend was that it can be a stressful thing to do. And we spent some time talking before this episode about how stressful this job can be. How stressful do you find it to be the founder of a 35-person company, to have sort of the burden of this company's success and these people's careers on your shoulders? And how do you cope with that burden? Yeah, for sure. Um, I would say the stress level uh, is definitely a thing, and it varies a lot. Um, Sometimes I'm super stressed, and sometimes I'm a lot less stressed. The things that are really important to me are essentially what it what it comes down to is like mm, making sure to take care of myself. And I think like with many things, there's like a, a spectrum when it comes to like self-care and working hard where like there's such a thing as like using self-care as an excuse to be lazy. But there's also such a thing as like working too hard that you're like neglecting like taking good care of yourself and it makes your work suffer and to me like one of the promises i made to myself when like starting this company was that i wouldn't sacrifice my physical or mental well-being to like make this company go because like you only have one life yeah and i don't want to make it shorter and so like you know i make sure to like get at least eight hours of sleep a night i I think exercise is really important. I'm really into rock climbing. And uh, one of the things that I really like about rock climbing is that I find that it very effectively induces a flow state. So like when I'm rock climbing, I I literally can't think about work. And I, I do think it's really important to like disconnect from your work, especially if it's really stressful. Like you can't be thinking about it all the time. And like often by disconnecting, you can like make your mind relax in such a way that you can solve problems that like you wouldn't solve by like sitting in front of your computer and like directly thinking about them all the time. So I don't know, to me, like work-life balance is not about like the number of hours that you work. It's like about making sure that you are getting what you need. That's not work. Uh, And for me, that's like 
like some disconnect time, uh, lots of physical activity, uh, meaningful relationships with friends. And I think there ha- you have to like know some people that you're close with that are like not in your company because otherwise you can't disconnect. That's funny you mentioned being in a flow state because that's something that a lot of software engineers will commonly tout as one of the benefits of programming, one of the things that makes it so enjoyable. You're an engineer. You came into this company more as an engineer than as a founder, really. What's your advice for software engineers who are listening who are considering starting their own companies? What can they learn from your story and your experiences? Yeah, I mean, like, one thing that I would take away is that, like, you know, you don't need to be someone who's always, like, dreamed of being a founder in order to be a founder. Even, like, one thing that I I want to accomplish through this company is to, like, be an example of someone who's like a little bit different from like uh, kind of the standard person you imagine starting a company, Uh, especially as a woman, like there's not like a ton of women founders out there. And I, I think that if you have an idea that you want to work on, like totally go for it. One of the best ways to like create uh, an environment that's like a good place for people who don't look like the status quo is to like start something from scratch because it's like easier to mold something that doesn't exist than to try to change the trajectory of something that's already flying in some direction. I could not agree more. And I think that, you know, you're already a role model for a lot of people listening in, including myself. So thanks a ton, Christine, for coming on the show and sharing your wisdom. Can you tell listeners where they can go to find out more about what you're up to at Nihilus? Yeah, so we have a uh, blog, which both posts about kind of company events that we run and also about uh, various different pieces of our technology. Um, You can also follow us on Twitter at at Nihilus. And if you're in the Bay Area, you should totally come by our developer series of events. We have a group on Meetup called Nihilus Developer Events. And uh, if you come to one of these events, you will probably meet me and I'd love to say hi. Great. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Christine. Thank you, Cortland. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.